I like to think about addiction you know, across a very broad spectrum. Yes, you have the person who can't pull the needle out of the arm or, you know, the guy who can't, you know, get out of the gutter with the bottle. But truly addiction lives on this spectrum where I think almost every single person can identify themselves somewhere along the line. Because as you mentioned, we all have pain. everybody and welcome to episode 22 of the two lads podcast this week we're talking to rich roll um if you don't know rich he's uh, an athlete triathlete super health megastar uh the founder of the rich roll podcast which you should go and check out it's amazing uh he's plant-based he is a real proponent of change in one's life um he speaks a lot about addiction and uh, and all that good stuff that we are really into here on the Two Lads podcast. Um, he's also an inspiration for making change in your life. So it was an honor to have him here on the podcast, and we had a really great conversation. I'm really enjoying having mentors on the show so that we can learn and keep learning. I think that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Anyway, uh, enough of me going on. No more faffing around. Let's get straight into the episode, and um, I think that's it. All right. Here we go, episode 22 with Rich Roll on the Two Lads podcast, now. Uh, yes, mate. Yes, mate. Uh, Rich Roll, welcome to the Two Lads podcast. Happy to be here. So excited <laughs> to talk to you guys. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's a real, real pleasure. We um, we have gone on a bit of a, a, a journey into listening to, to podcasts and, and things that kind of uh, really speak to us. And, and yours is definitely one that's, that's helped me drag Leggy into the world of triathlons and CrossFit. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a really good thing for Leggy, but it's, uh, oh. it's, been, a, it's been a great thing for me. <laughs> so it's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> this is Rich's uh, the beginning I, I, of it. I will not accept culpability for that, but I'm <laughs> glad to hear it at the same Spoken time. like a true lawyer. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. guys did, uh, you, you, did you both do the Malibu triathlon? We yes, did. We did. We yeah. have to, we have something to admit. We did see you at the beginning, and we were going to go up to you and just say you know hi, and then we we got a bit English shy and yeah. didn't and thought we'll just leave oh. the professional to it. But we wanted to say, you know, at that event we saw you and we're just really uh, we, we were really kind of like, well, you know, if we can keep up vaguely with Rich, we'll be all right. And then we finished almost last, so uh, you know, <laughs> not in the entire triathlon. Project, it. <laughs> Uh, you know, f first of all, always say hello. I would have loved to have met you guys. And uh, just for the record, I, I just did a relay. So all I was handling was the swim. So uh, yeah, that's yeah. all I had to worry yeah. about. We had did I do had the, to do the yeah. whole thing, it, it might have been a different story. Well, you, yeah. you've done we, you've done enough of those. I feel to to um, to, to warrant the the ability to to say that you are a triathlete mm -hmm. of serious contention. We we this was our first one, so we were. Uh, we were a little nervous about it. Yeah, it's in, it, we could actually segue into that because we this, the triathlon was one of the first things that Daniel and I, um, well, he got me into committing to. You know, and we've been talking a lot about commitment recently and um, focusing on, on some sort of goal, right? And that was like I've never worked out in my life. I was in bands and like a skinny rock and roller. That was my my brand for for a long time, and then I you know, wanted to get fitter and Daniel's always been uh, pretty, pretty fit in that department. So, and he was like, let's do this triathlon. And, and I just was like, well, what's a triathlon? <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's where we started. Yeah. <laughs> Off to a roaring start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he was like, you know what? Forget it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, but, um, but then we, we, he got me through us into this CrossFit, um, stuff and, and, and it's really changed my life actually. Um, personally, I, I didn't really recognize the, the value of physical exercise in, on the wheel of, um, different aspects of health. 
mm-hmm. um, for, for, for me personally. And, and it's been a massive uh, improvement in my own, my mental space and all those kind of things in my body. I've become settled into my body a lot more as, as a man and all that. And uh, um, when did you when did you kind of get into um, all of this stuff? Uh, I know you were a lawyer originally, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, it's great to hear, you know, there is something about, uh, you know, taking kind of stock and responsibility for your physical health. And, and you know, as you go on that journey, it, it, it obviously, as you experience, becomes a very empowering thing that then spills over in a positive way into essentially every facet of your life. Um, you know, for me personally, I've essentially always been an athlete. I grew up as a swimmer in the Washington DC area uh, and was on swim teams as early as, as six years old. And, and that was kind of like my main thing through high school. And then even through college, I swam competitively, uh, you know, at Stanford in the late 1980s. So that was, you know, a huge part of my life back then. But then I kind of just put it aside when I graduated from college, I moved to New York City. Uh, and, you know, fell into a, you know, pretty hard partying crowd there. And that, you know, my relationship with, you know, partying and alcohol and all of that had started, you know, a little bit earlier than that, but, um, it really kicked into a high gear in New York city and kind of carried on from there. And so for a good, you know, I don't know, 12, 15 years, I essentially was, uh, not doing anything athletic and just kind of searching out for my next good time. I also went to law school and ended up becoming a lawyer and working as a lawyer for many years. And, you know, then during that period of time, I I certainly wasn't looking after myself physically at all and kind of fell into the trap of being a junk food addict and a workaholic. And it wasn't until shortly before I turned 40, when I had a bit of a health scare, uh, that I had, uh, you know, a bit of a, lo- a line in the sand moment where I realized, like, I just couldn't keep living the way that I was living and, and needed to make some pretty drastic and immediate changes in my lifestyle. Um, and that began with my relationship with food and with this kind of resurgence of vitality uh, and needing an outlet for all of this additional energy that I was suddenly experiencing. That's what got me in- interested in multi-sport and kind of took me on this journey with triathlon that kind of set me up for all the things that I do today. Mm. You, you talk really kind of eloquently about addiction, Rich, and, and for both Leggy and I who are, um, have been through up the program and, and have a kind of interesting relationship with, with addiction. And we talk about it on this. Do you, you know, for you, were you aware of what exactly it was that you were running from in those years where you were treating your body like that or whether where you were using alcohol or drugs? Were you, was it something that you ended up having to face and go into the, the kind of the shadow of what you were running away from? And if so, what, what kind of, what lessons did you get from that? Yeah, I mean, most certainly. I, w- I would say for many years, I was, I was blithely unaware of um, kind of the underlying uh, you know, psychological uh, issues and, and, and trauma that uh, I had to contend with because I was very successful at repressing that through, <laughs> you know, drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, you know, keeping it at bay. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, as any kind of recovering drug addict or alcoholic will tell you, it wasn't until, you know, it stopped working and my life began to unravel first slowly, then very rapidly until, I kind of met my maker with all of this and, and you know, ended up getting sober uh, that I then had to confront all of the discomfort within myself that was driving a lot of these behaviors. And that's, you know, a very slow, nonlinear process that kind of happens uh, very gradually over time. So I would say that when I initially got sober, like I just wanted to stop drinking. You know, I, I couldn't see any further beyond that. And the idea that I could part ways with alcohol seemed impossible. And when I was able to create a foundation of sobriety, it was almost like a miracle that I was um, relieved of the obsession, as they say. Uh, but then all of those emotions start mm-hmm. to creep up, right? And they're very yeah. present yeah. in your experience. And that becomes very uncomfortable. And you realize that the drugs and the alcohol, uh, yes, they're a problem, but they were also a solution to a deeper problem for a long time until that no longer became a viable solution. And now you have to find 
new ways and develop new tools for working your way through all of that, that inward journey of processing um, your past and the stories that you tell yourself about who you are and what happened to you so that you can have a healthier relationship with yourself and grow into, and this is what recovery is all about. It's, it's, yes, it's about not drinking or using, but ultimately what it's about is learning to be content and at peace with, with who you are by reckoning with your past and developing a new way of living moving forward so that you can, you know, feel good in your own skin, look people in the eye and, you know, become a more, you know, sort of integrated human being. And, you know, that's a journey that will last a lifetime. And I do it imperfectly and inelegantly most of the time. Um, but bit by bit over many, many years, because I got sober in 1998, you know, I am now in a position where I am comfortable with who I am and I have made peace with my past. And, you know, I, it's very rare that I would, that I crave drugs and alcohol, but those character defects, you know, crop up pretty regularly. And if I'm mm -hmm. not rigorous with, my program um, and applying these tools that I've learned, uh, you know, I, I quickly slide, you know, back into old behaviors and 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 become uncomfortable in my skin. So it's you know it's an ongoing thing, as I'm sure you guys both know. Hello, everybody. So in addition to focusing on mental health, we've been learning a lot about the importance of digestive health here at The Two Lads. We have been looking around for the best kind of daily symbiotic, which is a probiotic and a prebiotic, and we found the company Seed. Now Seed is formulated for digestive gut, immune, and additional systemic body benefits. It is sustainably delivered each month with its shipping box constructed from ecological paper made from algae. I am extremely impressed, and I really mean this, with not only the product and the science behind it, but all their packaging and their brand's values. I like that they make you really look at the science of this and I like that they don't use plastic. And it's a really great company. Uh, you should check it out. I've been taking seed now for a, a few months and can feel the difference just in my energy levels, in, in how I sleep, in how I digest things. So if you want to try this broad strain daily symbiotic too, visit seed.com and use the code 2LADS at checkout to receive 15% off your first month of seed delivery. Try it out. Check it out. That's the code 2LADS to receive 15% off your first month of seed daily symbiotic capsules. Yeah. I mean, nobody likes pain, you know, so it's it's kind of when you're carrying a lot of unconscious pain, um, it, it, you know, removal the removal of that pain through any way possible is just like so attractive, you know, and I think sure. when, when, when one is unconscious of it, it's kind of I always described it as kind of putting you back into the normal state. Almost you're living in this kind of negative state of carrying this pain around with you and then all of a sudden someone gives you a drug or a drink or sex or any sort of like immediate um you know pleasure and all of a sudden and, and numbing out that pain equals happiness you know and then you go oh i feel good and then you right. go i want to keep feeling good because i feel like shit all the time mm -hmm. you know um and but it's really a, a bit of a zero sums game at the end of the day because you're just kind of the addiction's selling you out ultimately because you you just keep numbing that thing that's going on mm -hmm. but nobody's telling you about that. i mean i never i never knew about that i never mm -hmm. knew that that would be what it actually is it's just i thought drugs are great or like why wouldn't you want to be on drugs you know why wouldn't right. you want to be off for four <laughs> yeah. days just like out of it like this is literally the best thing ever guys who's coming with me and everyone's yeah. like no no i think one night's enough for me leggy what's wrong with five nights <laughs> <laughs> you're speaking my language yeah I, I mean i think i think uh you know we tend to think when we think when we talk about addiction we tend to think about crackheads and degenerate gamblers and the like but i've really come to a place where i like to think about addiction you know, across a very broad spectrum. Yes, you have the person who can't pull the needle out of the arm or, you know, the guy who can't, you know, get out of the gutter with the bottle. But truly addiction lives on this spectrum where I think almost every single person can identify themselves somewhere along the line. Because as you mentioned, we all have pain, right? And we all have strategies for self-medicating ourselves 
to keep that pain at bay. And that might be scrolling on social media or binging on Netflix or repeatedly getting into, you know, bad relationships with the same kind of, you know, person that uh, resembles your father or your mother. Uh, you know, there's any number of, of ways in which, you know, an addictive disposition or, or um, tendency mm. can, can impact your life in a negative way. And for most people, it's at a very low boil. So you can live your whole life without really meeting your maker uh, or bottoming out, as they say, with that addiction. And so, you know, when you have a severe addiction, like, you know, advanced alcoholism or heroin addiction or something like that, you know, you're, you're almost uh, in a better position because ultimately you're not going to be able to live your life for the rest of your life that way. You're going to have to confront it at some point. Right. And I think that's why you hear a lot of people, you know, in the 12-step in the rooms identify as a grateful addict or a grateful alcoholic because right. they hit that bottom and had to deal with everything underneath. And that's allowed them to blossom into the kind of human being they always wanted to be, as opposed to somebody who can kind of babysit a low-grade addiction throughout their life and never are compelled to kind of confront the demons that reside within. Mm. It's funny because once, even once you start approaching it, I'm still in this process of seeing how many layers there are to it. You know, it's not just stopping the thing. It's also little tiny white lies. And then it's, little, you know, things that are just prove that you aren't okay with self. And I'm seeing mm -hmm. like the extent to which this exists is, is incredible. I mean, you know, it, you, you see it a lot um, in your kind of day-to-day -day dealings. And then when you take kind of this idea of 12-step, which is personal, personal inventory, you kind of go, God, this is really far-reaching. And it, and it is a layer. It's another layer and another layer. And um, it, it is one of those things that, that for me keeps becoming apparent over a long period of time. And I'm still confronted with it. Yeah, it, it, it can be annoying, right? There are really so many annoying. layers. Like, <laughs> really it, it's like, uh, you know, how many things do I have to give up? Like, okay, isn't it enough that I'm not drinking or using drugs anymore? Right, and then right. you get, the more sober you get, the less tolerance you have for certain types of behaviors that you never would have thought twice about right. previously that now, you know, sit like, uh, you know, some kind of infection within you and you realize like, I have to let go of that too. And I have to let go of that too. Yeah. And, you know, the road gets narrower and narrower and narrower, but within that, there is this sense like, oh my God, you're just, you're, you're giving up everything and you're going to live this really boring life. But right. the irony, the kind of spiritual irony is that your life then begins to flourish as a result of that. Yeah. And I think also the idea is like, uh, not only is the life boring, but I'm boring now without mm -hmm. those things, you know, like mm -hmm. how could I possibly not lie about what I am or how could I not possibly do that? Because it, I would be so boring if I did right. that, you know? So it's like a, this kind of double edged kind of fear that, that, that seems to happen, which I think is the, in the investigation of what is you and what isn't, you know, and, and what is your kind of truth and, those things that we've, we've talked about on this podcast. Or to put it back on you guys, like as creative people, like, oh, if I get sober, I'm never going to be creative again. I'm never going to be able to write or produce a song or be able to be creative in this role. Um, I just will not be able to summon that facility anymore. And that's the great lie, of course. Like there's so many, especially in Los Angeles, like so many sober creatives who when they achieve sobriety, their careers explode and they have a facility with their creativity, like they're able to get into a new gear with it that they didn't even realize that they had because yeah. previously they were so dependent on a certain substance in order to, you know, bring it to the surface. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, the whole like rock and roll thing is actually a myth. Yeah. It's a total myth because it is, it's so unsustainable that lifestyle. Like if you're actually operating at a place of, uh, professional kind of responsibility and like you can't if you're a singer and you're doing coke all day every day you basically got three shows in you and then you, you can't sing anymore <laughs> yeah you know yeah. like it doesn't it doesn't function as like it, 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 so somewhere along the line this became mythology that like when you're in a band you have to just get fucked up all the time and have sex with everybody and like it, it's, right. it's just this weird kind of byproduct of essentially people that are going into the limelight to feed off of this external kind of validation 
that's happening. Uh, and yet these are all just really like deeply wounded in pain people that are coming and stepping into this space to kind of heal. It's like the, the ultimate drug is to have sure. that adoration in front of a crowd, for example, or an actor or whatever it is, you know. Um, but it's just so sustainable as, as my experience of it. Right. Or that idea that uh, if you're trying to get your career going, you have to be at this bar or this party yeah. because that's where all the deals are happening right. and you have to be seen there. And it isn't until later that you realize that most successful people are at home in bed because they're right. actually working and taking their craft seriously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I always used to ask that question. I'd be like, how are you still here? And they were like, I, dude, I went home, man. You've been here for right. two days. Yeah. Like they would like come and like, you know, they'd be at the bar every night, not drinking, just talking to people. And then they would leave, mm -hmm. you know, and I was like lost in that myth uh, mm. uh, for many, for many years. Um, but, I'll, I'll just jump on that to say that um, uh, what you were saying there, Rich, about uh, the rock bottom thing of like how that forces you into your kind of self inventory, you know, I, I, and I would say. I, my dad, my father d never had that opportunity. He didn't go into the rock bottom. He he was the flatline kind of operating in some sense of alcoholism, but really not aware of it being an issue ultimately. And culturally, where where I'm from in the world, that's just so like normal. It's like what is how people get laid in England, right? You know, so like that drinking is just kind of part of the culture. And so for me, I had the rock bottom that forced me into this whole new world. It's like the book stops with our generation. Me and Daniel are both going through that. And it's, I'm gr so grateful for the being putting on my knees moment, mm. you know, because as I see in the world, that doesn't happen to everybody. You know, how, 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 do, how do you, do you think that's, that matters? Do you think everybody needs to go through this process ultimately? Well, I certainly think that, that, you know, pain is the ultimate motivator, you know, like the, 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 the capacity to change lives within all of us. And every moment we're faced with opportunities to make different types of decisions that could, you know, completely change the trajectory of our lives. But for some reason, it's very difficult to change or to make those contrary decisions um, unless you're up against the wall, right? So if you are in pain, you're in a better position to, you know, do that other thing that is uncomfortable. So there is something about that that I think is transformative. And um, that's why, you know, I, 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 you know, when I see somebody having a really hard time or, you know, heading down a wrong path, like our instinct as humans is to save them from, you know, hitting that bottom or, to help them before some kind of cataclysm exists. And, I, you know, I think that that's a good instinct. But at the same time, I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, everybody has their own path and you don't want to spare somebody from that moment of reckoning because that could be the catalyst that could ultimately, you know, be transformative for them. Hmm. So, you know, in the case of, uh, you know, addiction, somebody who's struggling with something, you know, the way that I think about it is, is, you know, ostensibly the elevator's going down, right? Like if you're caught in a vicious cycle of addiction, whether it's a behavioral addiction or a substance addiction, um, the best case scenario is that your life stays the same, but it's very unlikely that it's going to get better or improve. And most likely it's going to degenerate and get worse. So at what point, like how bad does it have to get before you're ready to really reckon with that behavior and make some changes? And everybody has a different pain point and that elevator doesn't have to crash all the way down to the bottom before you step off of it. You can step off of it at any time, but there is something about meeting, you know, that, that place of sufficient pain that really becomes a, a powerful motivator in getting people to do things that ordinarily, you know, we mm. just are, we have a hard time doing. Mm. Yeah. It seems that we do have a really strange relationship with pain now, you know, to, in terms of there are so many distractions, Rich, to, or, or that can alleviate pain, Netflix or, you know, all of these very simple systems that either allow us to, for a moment, check out. It's interesting because exercise could be seen as one of those things, right? You reach a point of pain threshold and you push through it. And through that, you realize how powerful, how much more powerful you become in that, in that continual loop, which is different from just 
having this thing that stops the pain and allows you to just to kind of carry on in the same vein. There's a, there's a, there's an evolution of it. Um, did, did you, did you feel that with that, with exercise, it was really important to your sobriety in terms of, you know, to be able to get, to, to have an outsource to see, oh, there is pain. I can push this to this limit. And then Mm -hmm. there's, there's something after this. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my relationship with pain is, is, is complex, I would say. Um, I certainly think that, that exercise has played a large role in my sobriety, but I'm always careful to point out that it wasn't what got me sober. Like I was sober for many, many years before I got into multi-sport. And I think people get confused and think that, you know, I became this vegan endurance athlete and that cured me of alcoholism. And right. it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, the, the solution to my alcoholism is a spiritual program and 12-step is what, you know, helped me get sober and still continues to this day to be my solution um, to dealing with my addiction. But um, exercise does play a large role in my overall well-being in terms of like my mental state, my emotional state. Um, and there is something about, you know, the pain, particularly in endurance sports, that that can be a really powerful teacher. Now, you can, if you have like low self-esteem and a lot of shame, you can go out and, you know, get on your bike or go running and, and you know, go as hard as you can to feel that pain as a, as a way of punishing yourself. And I would characterize that as an unhealthy relationship with pain, you know, mm-hmm. as, a, as a means of like exercising your demons. But I think the flip side of that is that pain can become this incredibly empowering teacher. Um, when you step back and you kind of look at the way our society operates, everything in our, in our kind of sensory environment is telling us that happiness is the product of comfort, ease, and luxury. Every billboard, every TikTok, everything we look at is telling us that if we get that car or that job or that sofa or that apartment, um, if we can become famous or have this many followers, then I will be happy. And happiness is a life where you get to kick back and go on fancy vacations and have lots of, you know, material items that are the envy of, you know, your friends. Uh, But in truth, and in my experience, uh, you know, happiness has nothing to do with that. Like happiness is really a fleeting product of pursuing a life of, of meaning and purpose. And discovering that purpose and that kind of avenue for mining meaning for me has been a product of putting myself in uncomfortable situations of getting out of my comfort zone. And I've done Mm -hmm. that through sport, of course. Um, But I think that applies to kind of the psychic and emotional pain of, you know, breaking out of your routine and trying something new Um, because it's in that place where you experience growth and you have those struggles, but when you're able to kind of get over a certain hurdle or make progress, that is a, uh, an esteemable act. Like it's an act that you've taken for yourself in which you've proven to yourself that you could do something that you didn't want to do or you thought you weren't capable of doing. And I think being in the habit or the practice of, of, of doing that consistently over long periods of time can help you build a foundation of self-esteem and self-confidence and help, um, help you, you know, be in a better place to work through, you know, the shame of your past or whatever trauma you're experiencing and, Mm -hmm. and will be little stepping stones on the journey towards discovering what for you might be a life of greater meaning and purpose and, and self-actualization. Yeah, I, I was going to say, how how does one discern between those two pain avenues? You know, mm. so 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 what you just explained essentially, but like it's very difficult to, especially when you're saying, and I I agree with this, but it's going into the fear right of of whatever this thing is that's going to potentially give you growth, and yet at the same time, not going stepping into putting your hand in the fire where you've been burned before, right. you, you know what I'm saying? The discernment between that, like what, you got anything on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, that self-awareness comes through the habit of doing, you know, personal inventory, uh, you know, periodically and a 10 step inventory almost daily. 
um, which is a process that you learn in 12-step where you kind of take responsibility for your past actions. You look at your resentments, your fears, um, your anger, uh, your sexual behavior, and through this process emerge themes that really shine a light on kind of what your character defects are and what your kind of habitual patterns are that get you into trouble. Um, and with that, you get this like blueprint, like, oh, when I'm feeling uncomfortable, I always lash out at this person or, you know, I put my hand on the hot coals because I don't want to feel this way. And I think with that self-awareness, then you can then distinguish between, you know, behaviors uh, where you're inviting pain into your life in an unhealthy way versus opting for other avenues of, you know, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations that can actually improve your life and, and kind of catalyze some personal growth. Hey, this is Leggy. Um, just a quick announcement or reminder, if you will, that we still have our Patreon account running. And um, if you've been enjoying the content and the podcast and the conversations that we're having and that you find them valuable in any way, um, one way that we would really appreciate in return, if you feel like you're up for it, is to donate a little bit of hard cash. Um, mainly because, you know, we live in the world and the world requires um, money on some level. And um, if we have a little bit of cash to help us make the podcast, to pay the people that work with us, that help us make the podcast, it just uh, makes our life uh, a little bit easier in accomplishing that goal you can go over to patreon.com uh, forward slash two lads you can sign up for i believe it's a five dollar a month um support uh tier or i think you might be even make a donation there so you could maybe even make a one-off donation whatever the amount is it doesn't matter how small or how big we would really appreciate any support that you can give us in that way and look if you can't afford anything that's cool too just want to do a quick message for you all and now let's get back to the episode yeah that i rich i guess the uh, another question you know this podcast is not exclusively for but there is a focus on helping young men right you know there's this real feeling that you, that young men finding meaning for young men is quite a hard thing. You know what, what you were talking about there. As a father to some young men, do you? Is there something that uh, a kind of tip that or a way of of allowing men with you know who are in this world right now finding the meaning that that gives them that that sense of purpose and gives them that sense mm -hmm. of belonging because right now I think it's quite hard to, to belong, um, especially in this, in this society. So is there something that you, that you kind of impart to them and, and also in a wider context think is useful? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very astute observation. Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, of young men who are struggling with identity, trying to find ways to fit in, and are, you know, basically at risk of falling into this, uh, you know, kind of materialistic cycle of trying to measure up to other men and doing it in, 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 in toxic ways. So how do we help young men kind of avoid those pitfalls and set them on a better trajectory? And I, I think, you know, for me, I have two stepsons who are now 26 and, and 25 that I've helped parent into young adulthood and I have two teenage younger ones, um, at the, at the moment. And, you know, all I can do is, is share my experience. Like it's, I, I wouldn't characterize myself as a parenting expert. Um, cool. but I think it's important to help young men develop, uh, emotional awareness and emotional IQ, uh, because we're in a world that, that really reinforces um, young men kind of keeping their emotions close to the chest and puffing that chest out and kind of measuring themselves against each other through, you know, physical prowess or, or, you know, kind of material prowess. And ultimately, you know, it's incumbent upon us as dads, as fathers, as parents 
to um, help young men mature into people who have the self-sufficiency and the self-confidence to be who they are? Like, how do you help these young men discover who they truly are and feel comfortable pursuing and expressing that in their lives? And the only way I know how to do that is to, um, is to, you know, be a loving resource to them and to, from a very early age, endeavor to keep the communication channels open where these young men, um, grow into a facility for communication, um, because mm. I think young men aren't really taught how to communicate, particularly when it comes to their feelings and having that ability to do that with your father, I think is, is, is really important. And then exposing them to lots of different things and seeing what they naturally gravitate towards and then rushing in to fill the gap and support that one thing where, their eyes light up and it looks like this might be something that they could grab onto. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't have to be sports. Um, it could be, you know, any type of hobby or anything, but something that, uh, they, you can notice that they engage in deeply. Um, and I think that can be, you know, a tool or an experience for them developing the confidence and, and self-esteem that I think is required to kind of stand on your own two feet and look people in the eye. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, beyond that, uh, yeah, I, I really think like I can't overemphasize enough the importance of, of communication, particularly as they, you know, get into their adolescent years and hormones kick in. And a lot of that, it's very easy to allow that communication to kind of shut down or become truncated as mm. part of the separation process between, you know, child and parent. Um, so to the extent that you can always be working on keeping that communication open, I really think it's the key. And then there's no, there's no substitute for being there, for showing up, for right. being present in their lives. And I think a lot of parents and fathers you know, think about like quality time with their kid and they want to create some fantastic experience or always have it be, you know, the best or, um, you know, something, uh, you know, really extreme when in truth, there is no such thing as quality time. There's just the time that you spend with your kid. And, and the most important time is just, is the everyday life. It's, you know, the dinner table or, or the walk to school or, or the kind of mundane, everyday mm. life moments um, and being present with your younger person in those moments and not being on your phone or distracted or mm. thinking they're not important, I think is absolutely key as well. It's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Uh, especially what you're saying about just throwing them into a bunch of stuff and see what sticks and then kind mm -hmm. of going into that when, when, you, when, you, when you notice it, that's awesome. And not being attached, like not not right. ha not being attached to whether they're successful at it or, you know, right. being kind of the annoying parent that's overly invested in whether yeah. they stick with it or whether they're good at it. Right. Um, what about like the kind of, do, do, you, do you think that there's a, so I was just thinking then about men as kind of providers or whatever that role historically has been and, 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 and the women being the nurturers and what's your take on those kind of uh nature versus nurture kind of uh frameworks and do you think that in the current climate uh, culture men are kind of battling with that historical uh primal aspect of being a provider whatever that has meant over the over time to what does it look like now to be a provider and do you still think it's important for men to 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 fulfill that role in some way Mm, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there is something kind of baked into us where we feel like we want to be the provider. It's a primal instinct that's within us. But, you know, we don't live in the Stone Age and we don't live in the 1950s. We live in the 2020s. And I think it's a really confusing time for a lot of um, men who are who are starting families. And I think you know, how you manage this is going to be contingent upon the kind of disposition of, of your partner and what the, what your partner's strengths and weaknesses are versus right. your own. But I do think it, it, it can be confusing because, you know, 
in in 2022, the 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 man of the house is expected to be on some level, and maybe we are putting this on ourselves to be the provider, but also be emotional support, also be available to go to all the school stuff. Like you have to mm-hmm. kind of fulfill, you know, you can't be Don Draper anymore. You got to be like all of these things at once. And it can be mm. quite overwhelming. Like, you know, it's like mm. the number of emails that I get every single day from my kids' schools, like it would take me four hours a day to read all of that. It's like, it's it's almost like a Herculean, impossible mountain to climb to mm. um, be able to fulfill, you know, to the best of your abilities, every single one of these expectations and roles yeah. every single day. Um, so I think it's important uh, for for men to kind of relax a little bit and realize that you're not going to excel in every bucket every single day and to kind of take it day by day and and do the best you can. You know, you try to provide, you try to be emotionally available, you endeavor to be present for, you know, the important school events and other events, uh, you know, in your children's lives. And again, it goes back to the day in, day out. It's less about like the big, you know, football game or whatever it is. And, and more about like, you know, uh, you know, how present were you with your kid at breakfast? Mm. Yeah. I like that simplicity of it as well. But I think when we talking about the fifties then, and when I think about that or these kind of, uh, old fashioned ways of being, I guess. To me, when I look at that, I just see it as like an overcorrection from the chaos of the Second World War, for example, you know, mm-hmm. and like there was just so much carnage that they, then we kind of went into this all order and like, we're going to have the fence, we're going to have the family. There's this dream of this kind of you perfect life, American, the American dream, you know, which became a little bit constricting in the roles that was set out and then the 60s happened and blew it all up and then we've been kind of i feel like we're just been trying to put it all back together in some weird way and now we've got this like weird like frankenstein person that's like everyone's trying to figure out what their role is and we all want this same thing but then we also don't we also want the i like what you just said about like you're kind of judging within your own personal experience with your partner you know, you get to figure it out. But I do feel that there's probably some um, uh, balance between masculine and feminine that, that lives between the, the dance of a relationship and, and whoever takes on those roles, fair enough. But you know what I'm saying? So the, sure. you're complimenting your partner. But you couldn't have two Don Drapers in a relationship, put it that way. Right. You know? right, right, right. Oh, the, uh, that is a relationship I would like to see, to be fair. <laughs> That's a show I would like to see. <laughs> a lot of whiskey. <laughs> a lot of whiskey. <laughs> a lot of smoking. Yeah. Yeah, you I mean, I think, you know, masculinity and femininity, you know, exist on a scale. And I think every man has some, you know, uh, sort of feminine qualities, uh, some more than others. And likewise, women, uh, you know, some women are more masculine than others. So, uh, you know, to me, it's it's not about any rule book or expectations. It's really about communication with your partner and figuring right. out what works between the two of you to make a household functional. And if that means that, um, you know, the wife has the better job and is going to be the breadwinner and the dad is going to stay home with the kids, like that works for a lot of people, you know. So it's really, you know, it's really a conversation, an ongoing conversation between partners about what is optimally functional and what is right. in the best interest of the kids. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing wrong with being masculine, like certainly, you know, toxic masculinity is a problem, but healthy masculinity is important and should be celebrated. Mm. I Sorry, I'm just going to jump in. I just was going to say, I don't like the term toxic masculinity because it's kind of an oxymoron to me or, or something. It was like masculinity when it's ma- masculinity isn't that, you know, it's when it when it's integrated and it's actually functioning. It's it's the complement to femininity. And like, Mm -hmm. to me, what I see when I'm, when I'm, when I want to demonstrate what masculinity actually is, it's not whatever that is like violence and it's unintegrated, you know, and Mm. all these kinds of things. Um, toxic masculinity has become like a, 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 it's like a, it's like a buzzword now, Mm. you know? And Mm -hmm. I I think it's overused quite honestly, you know, because it just kind of condemns men in that, this blanket way. And it's like when, when some, when a man's doing some weird shit, like there's in, there's inventory to be done there 
you know, when a man's stepping out of his of his truth and he, and he's going into violence or he's going into lies and you know all of the the dumb shit that men can do, that's just I see that as pain. Ultimately, that's mm. that's that's showing up as as action in in a in a in a negative way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, well said, well said. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because the desire is right to. Um, I, I I'm watching now as as we kind of move into this culture war um, that you've talked a bit about, Rich. And I, was, I was just listening to a conversation you were having, and I what what I find interesting is that the use of shame is is very anti twelve step. Actually, you know that the process is one of this is the reveal. Then there's there's work to be done. You know that 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 to merely get rid of that conversation or to, to, to pretend that like that doesn't exist in humanity seems like a strange uh, route for any evolution of our idea of how to, to kind of get past it or to, um, to in some way evolve from it. You know, I, I feel the shame factor is, is a really, I don't know if it's new in, in, in societal terms, it feels new, but the shame of it seems very anti 12 step to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, the the way that that shame is is weaponized and deployed on on platforms like Twitter, you know, if you're on Twitter all day, then you see it kind of uh, you know unfolding in in, in real time, and, and you realize like how potent and damaging it is. And right. ultimately, you know, kind of just speaking to the culture wars more broadly, I think that um, you know the antidote is always more conversation not less. And I also think that, uh, you know, the antithesis of shame is, is forgiveness, right? And we need to provide an opportunity to cultivate more of that, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're a better society when we are in a forgiving place, um, when we can provide forgiveness and, um, and receive forgiveness. And mm. that's, I think, a big piece that's, that's sort of lacking right now in the, in the kind of, particularly in, in the digital space. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say, people struggle with that, though. It seems that they, or people don't seem to understand what forgiveness actually is, you know, because people think that forgiving is like letting somebody off of some sort of uh, responsibility or accountability to their actions, but but I would disagree with that. And but but you know how people there's this uh, you know shame is the, the, a weapon of of the the uh, the popular vote of somebody being in or out of the group. You know, and mm-hmm. I mean, look, we've seen it in religion for millennia, and it, you know, it's Catholicism, all that stuff. That's how they brought got bums on seats in the church. But I think we've rejected religion. And now we've got a new religion, which is still, it's the same thing. It's just a different mm-hmm. God, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and we're still, we're still using shame to, mm-hmm. to get you to conform to this is the way to think and that's it. And if you don't think you're, you're against us. So it doesn't leave a lot of room for maneuvering, especially when you right. deal with humans that are all fucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Should we talk about food? <laughs> Happy to talk about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, that we, was we a hard the, pivot. Yeah, that's See a, that? that's a just, <laughs> He looks up and he takes a left turn. He's looking good. Yeah. Right. Um, Daniel, well, do you want to just talk about food a bit? Because I don't really know about this whole diet thing that, that y'all, the, 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 uh, the diet stuff. <laughs> wow, mate. You've I pivoted. just eat meat all day. Yeah. You've, you've, you've pivoted and then you've given me yeah. the pivot, which is quite yeah. an interesting look. It's a one-two, that, mate. It's the two lads a, podcast. That's what we're both here. We just one-two it. Well, Rich, you know, I, I think for, for me, for, for I've found um, that the process of um, this looking at oneself, right, what you can do oneself, and it starts with, for me, the most tiny minutia. One is how you treat this body and how, for me, who have, has kind of had depression and various forms of addiction, I... I realized how my own body was a bit of a hard place to be. And so my responsibility, instead of kind of trying to outsource that and make other few people feel pain, pain, which I've done in my life, is also, was also like, well, how am I treating myself? And um, your, your moment of 
the health scare, right, was um, a big wake up for you because you realized you can't do this to your body. And actually, when your body is in that much pain and given more pain by what you eat and what you do, um, it it is become it become kind of becomes the only first step you can take, which is to be like, okay, I've got food is I can control what goes in here. And if I can do that, then maybe I'll feel a little better. Maybe I'll sleep better. And if I sleep better, some of the depression won't become so debilitating. Um, Mm -hmm. Was that your experience in after the, I mean, what a scary moment to like think that your heart might not make it through this, you know, and did you go, right, this is it. I'm this, I can control this. This is what I'll do with this. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty accurate, rundown of what happened. And I think you're, you're, you're correct in that, you know, there are, there's, so, when you, th- when you really think about it, there's so few things that we have control over in our lives, right? Like we can control how we react to situations. Um, we can control what comes out of our mouth and we can control what goes into our mouth and it kind of ends there. Right. So when you really think about it, like we tend to think that we have, we, we have way more control over things than we actually do. And, and the kind of more sober you get, and this goes into the kind of conversation around surrender, you realize like, Oh, like so much of my anxiety is around my futile efforts to kind of control my environment. And the more awareness you come into, you know, how uh, incapable we are of doing that, there is a certain peace, right? And then you become Mm -hmm. focused on the very few things that you can control. And in the case of that kind of health scare, um, it it was a moment in which I had like, this, you know, sliver of clarity that was not dissimilar to the moment when I realized I had to get sober and ended up in a treatment center. And they are these like kind of uh, cracks in the universe or like temporal, you know, opportunities that are very fleeting. But if you can latch onto them and realize their power, they can be transformative. And when I was on this staircase and winded and thinking I was having a heart incident, I really had a vivid recollection of that moment of deciding to get sober and how drastically my life had changed because of that one decision. And I had this, you know, full body awareness that I was having another such opportunity or moment where if I could make a different decision, that perhaps I could once again change my life in a positive way. And and that awareness allowed me to kind of move into action immediately, not knowing what I was doing. I just knew I needed to do something. And I was kind of relying on this addiction sobriety paradigm, this kind of binary thing, like you're either drinking or you're sober, like there's no middle ground. And how can I apply that to my relationship to food? Because clearly you know, the, the way that I was eating and living was not working and was very addictive in its nature as well. And that's what kind of, you know, led me into this exploration of diet and nutrition and, and how to, you know, eat to eat to thrive um, rather than eat to hide from my emotions. And again, mm. that was something that was not linear and took quite a long time to kind of get on top of. But ultimately, uh, you know, found my way to eating this, eating a plant-based diet, which is something I've been doing now for 15 years. Um, and not only has it, you know, restored me physically, there have been so many, um, positive benefits of it in other areas of my life. Like it's really put me in greater connection with, uh, being more conscious about, the decisions that we make every single day with how we um, deploy, you know, our resources, our time, our money, our energy, and made me more mindful of how important those decisions are, what we put in our mouth, of course, where does it come from? What is the downstream, you know, environmental implications of those choices? And how, uh, you know, how, how am I, um, impacting the world through, you know, the, the sort of clothes that I decide to wear and where do those come from? And, you know, it, it really has, has allowed me to appreciate and more deeply understand the interconnected nature of, of literally 
everything. And mm. it's enriched me in, in many ways. And yes, it restored my health and it's powered me through all of these crazy races that then gave me a platform to now talk about these things that I, that I think are really important. Mm. That's so cool. Um, so, so the, the, you're V, so it's vegan, right? Is, is basically mm. right. Um, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I just, uh, <laughs> nothing with face. a face and nothing with a mother. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. You're, you're okay. talking to a lad it's from the rules on dating. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, cause I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I eat a lot of meat. Basically, that's my, I'm probably more, I'm like carnivore. I just eat meat and arugula. That's really all I eat. Mm. And then like some protein, like eggs and stuff. So is it, um, is it, it's a, it's a full circle reason of to why you're over on plant-based diet in terms of health, but it's not, it's an ethical one as well. It's, is, is it an animal thing? Is it, is it that kind of stuff as well? Or is it, is it, is it mainly fun, um, fueled by the health scare? And yeah. Then, yeah. It uh it, it it began truly as a selfish act to try to feel I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired, you know, like I wanted yeah. to feel better. I didn't like how I looked in the mirror. So, you know, there was an aesthetic aspect of it as well. Like sure. I just didn't yeah. want to be fat and I felt like shit. Yeah. And uh I figured like there's got to be a better way. And when I tried a bunch of diets that didn't work and ultimately went kicking and screaming into attempting to do a plant-based diet, thinking it wasn't going to make any difference or be any different than any of these other things I tried. I was um, surprised at how quickly uh, I felt a lot better. And that kind of you know lit me up and set me on this path towards trying to learn how to do this better and refine it and do it properly so that I could sustain it. Um, so yeah, it was personal health was my kind of inception point to the whole thing. And I had a couple of mentors along the way, some athletes who had blazed the trail a little bit ahead of me and had written some books and mm. have become friends who, who, you know, really helped me figure this out so that I could, you know, be an athlete and compete at the highest level, eating nothing but plants. But in the many years that I've been doing this, um, I have become much more aware and passionate about the environmental implications of our food system and the choices that we make around food, as well as the, um, the you know, many compassionate reasons why this lifestyle is, mm -hmm. is, is favorable by opting out of being a participant in the cycle of abuse and, um, and slaughter, you know, billions of animals every year are, are killed, you know, what I've now discovered to be unnecessarily because I've thrived so well on this diet without eating any of them for, for so long. And, you know, I wouldn't characterize myself as an animal rights activist, but I certainly care about these issues a lot. And I, that was something that I, that was really not on my mind at all when I began this journey. But mm. the more that I've kind of learned about this, the more appalling it is to me. And I think even yourself being a meat eater, uh, I, I would suspect that you're no fan of factory farming and have probably seen videos of animals being treated horribly. Nobody, yeah. you know, is in favor of that. And I think we're all uh, constitutionally, you know, compassionate people who want to see, you know, a more um, compassionate world, whether you're a meat eater or not, uh, of animals being, being treated better. And, you know, for me to just kind of opt out of all of that together just feels good to me and the fact that I can thrive. It's almost as if this lifestyle uh, checks all the boxes, like it's more environmentally conscious. It has a lower, uh, you know, carbon footprint. Um, it is, you know, it is, it is opting out of the cycle of cruelty with animal agriculture. And it's, uh, you know, a great way to sidestep a lot of these chronic diseases that are unnecessarily, you know, felling millions of people all over the world through type 2 diabetes and obesity and high blood pressure and heart disease and and the like because those are this these those are the real epidemics right now i mean most people are dying from heart disease or failing health due to uh type 2 diabetes or 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 being pre-diabetic and to the extent that we can eat in a manner that allows us to not become a victim of, of one of those chronic lifestyle illnesses is, you know, a, a fantastic thing. Mm. Mm. 
one last question, Rich, which is um, your compassion and your ability to kind of uh, research these topics and do this. We've just started this podcast. And one of the brilliant things about a, a podcast, I think, is just is that you get to hear from people who are mentors of some kind, right? So I had to start a, a podcast with, with my best mate, Leggy, in order to be able to chat to you. And like, you know, you, you're a big yeah. part of, you know, it's a, it's a fucking great thing. I'm so, I'm like, I'm, I'm buzzing that like I get to listen to you and then I get to kind of take these little lessons and, and these people that have meant a lot to me in my journey. I wondered if, was starting the podcast, because you were relatively kind of early days with, the, you know, early in the, before it was cool, um, has it surprised you what you've learned and also what, what you've learned along the way? Has it changed you a lot in doing this process and why did you start a podcast? Yeah, it's, it's certainly changed me and it's just been the most personally fulfilling thing I could have ever imagined for myself. I mean, you know, I, like you said, I, I started it quite a ways ago, it's been over nine years now. We started it in late 2012. And although there were, you know, certainly other large podcasts at the time, I mean, Rogan was already going, Adam, a lot of comedians like Adam Carolla, Kevin Smith, people like that um, had shows at the time. Podcasting, you know, was a, such a far cry from what it is now. I mean, you, you it was before the iPhone, so you couldn't even stream them. You had to download them on a desktop and then bump them to an iPod. Like you had to be very intentional about wanting to listen to a podcast at that time. And there was nothing cool about it. Like it, it just was a medium that had, you know, a very small audience at the time. But from the first episode that I did, I just, I loved it, you know, yeah. and it became this opportunity, like you just mentioned to, uh, you know, get people that I admire or who I wanted to learn something from to sit down with me. And I mean, what a great scam, right? It's like, the, it's like <laughs> the unbelievable, right? you know, like, yeah, <laughs> that you can hoodwink these people into stealing their time. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that, I, I, and it never occurred to me that it would be a vocation or that I would ever make any money or be able to provide for my family doing it. I just, I truly did it for the love of it and did it consistently, never missed a week, you know, since I began it. And it's just grown. It, it's never had like a viral moment. It's just sort of progressively grown over the years. And I was able to kind of, you know, grab a little piece of real estate, you know, in the ecosystem. And as the whole medium grew around me, you know, kind of hold on to that. And I just feel very blessed to be in, a, in the position that I am in, in right now where there's so many people who are watching and listening to it and, and getting value from it. I mean, that's the real gift, right? To be able to contribute to kind of elevating consciousness across the world by bringing, you know, conversations about things that matter with really amazing people that perhaps somebody would have never come across otherwise. It's just, a, mm. it's a really beautiful thing. And, you know, nine years later, I'm just as in love with it as I was in the beginning. And, you know, I intend to continue with it uh, as long as I'm, you know, kind of physically and mentally capable of doing it. Uh, and I've, you know, people ask me all the time, like, well, what have you learned from it? It's impossible for me to tabulate or organize any kind of coherent um, laundry list of the things that I've learned because each person, you know, that you sit with, you learn something and then it kind of just goes into the, the goopy muck of your kind of relative unconscious mind. Um, but I know that I'm a better person as a result of these conversations and my actions and my behaviors are are, you know, more mature and more informed than they would be otherwise. And so across the board, I just think that it's been the most nourishing education for me. And to just be a steward of these conversations for other people is, you know, is, is truly a gift. And I think, you know, I'm sure you guys are experiencing your version of that in, in doing the same. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's 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 uh, it's really been a cool way to, like I just said, just reach out and have these cool conversations with people. And men the mentorship is just for me, like it's so powerful to have have mentors that we get to talk to in this way. Because I didn't have a lot of those growing up, so 
Uh, it's been a real pleasure to to talk to you today, Rich. And whatever you're doing, keep doing it because you're clearly smashing it. Yeah, <laughs> oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Had a lot yeah. of practice. Yeah, no, it's, it's so great. Good. It, it's um like a, it has been a really big part of um you know my development, and I I wanted to thank you for that because like like you says that I, there aren't many places now to go to feel like oh i really i tap into this person's viewpoint or i i really admire the way this person thinks and i think it's a great thing that podcasts are becoming so important and hopefully we do this for young men or young women who who we have a little audience who who love this kind of these kind of depth of conversations and you know it, it was incumbent on us to like speak to the mentors who helped us have these conversations and you're one of them so i just wanted to thank you and um yeah i mean not only do you look fantastic in that in that studio mm. over there so it's obviously working but your your podcast is great and we'll put a link to that in our uh, in our little blurb that I don't know anything about and that Leggy does all of. So. Yeah. <laughs> Technical. Uh, cool, man. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. Uh, this was really fun, guys. And uh, yeah. it means a lot that you had me on. So thank you. Rich Roll, thank you so much for being on the Two Lads podcast. Thanks, right Rich Roll. Peace. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of the Two Lads Podcast with Rich Roll. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe, like, and uh, comment below if you're watching on YouTube. Um, We really appreciate the feedback and to hear from the community and and all that good stuff. So um, next week, we've got another episode as usual. And actually, I don't know who it is yet. I mean, I know, but I don't know if you know what I'm saying. So uh, stay tuned listen in next week and um until then we're sending you lots of love until the next time yes lad (laughs) 